like that so those are the Icaros those are the sacred songs of uh, ayahuasca uh, grandmother ayahuasca and those are um, traditional songs sung in ayahuasca ceremonies um, from all over South America I've uh, participated in ceremonies uh, with Peruvian shaman uh, with Brazilian shaman and I believe there was a guy in there that was from Argentina, all of which used Icaros, but, um, you know, they had their own dialect and their own versions and their own uh, stories. So these are songs. These are stories. These are tools that um, these ayahuasca uh, shamans or um, I believe, what's the other term? Kunderos? Uh, I probably just butchered that, but yeah, these are, these are tools like surgical tools that, um, these shamans can use during the ceremonies to, to change your experience as you're in that DMT tryptamine palace in your head and really, um, show you things about yourself and, and help facilitate your experience, help facilitate your exploration of self, uh, whether it's a challenging experience, which oftentimes ayahuasca circles are, um, but the challenging ones are always the most beneficial. And sometimes they're, you know, I've had ceremonies where not much happened. Um, I've had ceremonies where I've accidentally fallen asleep and uh, been completely embarrassed that I started snoring um, while the while the uh, shaman was singing. So... Either way, I just wanted to give you guys a little taste of these songs that I mention on the podcast so often, and especially because uh, our guest that's coming on today uh, has been working in these circles with these particular um, shaman, these people, these teachers, these guides, um, very recently and in very intense ways. So uh, I wanted to bring that in so that you guys had a little background. All right, first and foremost, thank you for listening to the show. Um, please like and share. Just hit those buttons real quick, guys. Uh, it really doesn't take that long. Thank you. Like and share. Donate if you want to take it one step further. If you want to be a total badass and support something that you care about, um, donate. Five bucks. Give up a, a coffee to help us uh, bring on an awesome guest sometime. That's cool. But you don't have to. No obligation. This show's free. I do it for you guys. So, But there is a, a link at whatever 
at the bottom of whatever um, app you're using so that you can donate. Also go and support our YouTube page. That's the MindOps YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Go uh, subscribe to that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to everybody who continues to contribute, and thank you to those who uh, reach out with comments and feedback and and play an interactive role uh, in ways with the podcast. Um, this is not just my thing, guys. This is all of ours. So um, send me feedback. Send me, you know, who do you want me to have on the show? Send me... Uh, Send me feedback on the audio quality or whatever. Just help me get better at this, okay? Um, and to those of you who do take the time to put energy and love and uh, even you know donate money or time or service to the podcast because you get something from it, thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, but let's get on with the show Here's a track from the Arturo Complex. If you listened to the show before, I hope you still love it. I love it every time I listen to uh, listen to these guys. These, I don't know. They they take me into a different place every time we listen. And we're gonna have them on the show soon, but not this episode. So for now, just enjoy this track by the Arturo Complex.
Are you feeling a little sad today? Are you feeling a little down and depressed? Is the weather just not that nice? Is there something that just hasn't gone right today? Or something that has gone wrong? Well, that's okay. That's life, guys. Welcome to life. And I'm going to help you cheer up your day with a good news story from the Good News Network. And this comes from thegoodnewsnetwork.org. The title of this article reads, Man uses hot coffee to rescue three kittens whose tails were frozen to the ground. Um, oh, my God. Before I get in on this story, I freaking hate reading about those stories where people leave their pets outside in snowstorms and, you know, uh, not just their pets too. You know, this this extends into so many areas of like homelessness and and things like that. When there's so many open uh, public spaces that could be used for housing, are you kidding me? We're letting people freeze to death on the streets because what we're afraid? Uh, no, let these people use this space for the evening so that they can survive. Okay, we have the space. Uh, we probably have the food if we drove around town and collected. Um, food from uh, restaurants every day. I'm sure we'd have plenty of food to feed the homeless. We throw away so much food in the food industry. Um, so I also hate it when people leave animals outside. These animals are innocent. A lot of them uh, have been conditioned to not be able to survive in the wilderness. Uh, you know, I know a lot of pets, um, probably my own too. I don't know how long. I mean, my, my dogs get a cush here. You know, I think my little one, Ty, could probably survive for a while. He knows he has the ability to get a little gruff and rough and, and take care of business if he has to. Uh, but the big one, big tank, um, honestly, man, he's so pampered. I don't know if that big old Mastiff uh, has it in him to, to uh, I don't know, hunt for food and... Um, you know, have a rough lifestyle. So anyway, I hate it when people leave, leave their pets out in the, in the cold and in weather and, uh, leave them behind when they move and leave them on the side of the street and people who are just, oh, like these are, these are living creatures with consciousness, with feelings, um, you know, with some sort of thoughts. So why are you treating them like they are your objects? You know, it's just real sad. Anyway, the article, Man Uses Hot Coffee to Rescue Three Kittens Whose Tails Were Frozen to the Ground. Um, this is about a Canadian oil worker um, who was he was kind of like doing his routine checks on the oil wells in Dayton Valley, Edmonton. Yeah, so Canada. And thought he saw like a big pile of trash, but he went over there and saw that it was actually three kittens who had uh, left their little tails on the ground for a little too long and... They had frozen to the ground, um, and the, the cats couldn't get away. I think they were, like, probably, you know, I'm imagining they were probably pulling at it for a while and really hurting themselves and then uh, maybe experienced some some uh, existential shift where they were like, you know, I'm not going to get off from this thing. There's no use in pulling, and I'm just going to sit here and slowly die a cold death. And this guy came around, found them, uh, went back to his truck and got uh, his leftover coffee and just poured it on their tails, which freed the cats, and uh, the guy was able to um, 
snatch up the cats and take them in and feed them and make sure they were healthy, gave them dewormer, um, and then um, put them up for adoption on social media. His videos got more than like half a million views, and they did find a family for the three kittens so that um, they could all stay together in one household. That's really cool. And the picture that they have on the on the news story is really really quite cute i love so i hate stories when when people are the cause of animals suffering and i love stories where uh people are the cause of um animals um happiness or or something like that and then there's a bond established i've seen so many videos of like uh people jumping in and saving animals from frozen lakes or or saving um you know you know the old the old stories of like pulling a, a thorn out of the bottom of a, a lion's paw, or or just doing something nice for an animal, and then all of a sudden the animal um, views that person differently, views them as like, oh, you've been helpful to me. I, you know, I have some kind of bond or relationship, and then there is some kind of bond formed. That's really cool, and that's what I see in this picture here of the of the three kittens. It looks like when he pulled them out, they all, you know, they didn't run away from him or anything. They just kind of. Uh, allowed him to pick all three up at once and they look super happy and super comfortable and super grateful and hanging out in this guy's arms so i love stories like that it's just too bad that it had to start out because someone put their kittens out in the freezing cold so hope that cheered you up a little bit guys uh so now i'm going to give you a piece of my mind and uh, this is what has been on the conversation within my mind and a little bit related to today's topic that I talk about with uh, my guest coming up here in a minute. But uh, this is something that we all experience sometimes. So I'm just going to ask a question and let it sit with you guys and see how, it, see how it feels and see what comes up for you. And then I'll tell you what kind of came up for me when I asked myself this question. I said... Okay, so here's the question. So why are we afraid to pull the trigger? I don't mean literally pull the trigger. I mean pull the trigger on on your life. Why are we afraid to pull the trigger? Well, for me, first thing that came up was fear, for sure. I think everything for me in this realm is is fear-based. Um, I'm not pulling, I'm not, not pulling the trigger because they don't have the ability to, I know I have the ability to, I've seen myself and what my, some of my potentials are, but fear is what holds me back. And then fear splinters off into so many different directions. So then the next question I ask myself is, well, what's scaring us? And a lot of things could be scaring us. Um, I think for me, it's a mixture of a lot of things, and it's contextual. It depends on the situation, depends on what I'm doing. And um, so let's see. So some of the things that we're afraid of. Uh, sometimes I'm afraid of success and the responsibilities that would come with success, all the extra baggage that sometimes comes with success. And then I have to live up to something, to some expectation uh, that others will have of me because I have been successful um, so yeah, that's scary. Um, also fear of failure, um, fearing embarrassment around failure or humiliation or, um, fearing that I will feel less worthiness about myself. You know, all these things are just fears, things that I have created in my mind, 
Um, and they're just stories. They're just one of the many stories I could be telling myself. One, it's just that it happens that one story is a fear story. It produces fear, and that causes me, when I latch onto that story, that causes me to not pull the trigger. When just as easily I could latch on to a different story about success or failure or responsibility, uh, I could tell myself a different story that maybe brings up a different emotion, maybe an emotion of excitement or an emotion of um, joy, um, that when I can connect with that thought, maybe it would make it easier for me to pull the trigger on something. For instance, if I'm afraid of success and the responsibility that comes from being successful, uh, I can think of some aspects of, of having that extra responsibility that would be exciting. Things like, you know, I finally would get to uh, maybe manage my own project at work um, where I would be able to um, create my own my own thing rather than um, always be working towards somebody else's goals. You know, that's a huge, that's a something that makes me super excited more so than like being successful with money is getting to do what I want to do and not having to do it for the man. Uh, and that, when I connect with that story, it brings up so much excitement rather than fear. And it'll, it would allow me to pull the trigger on that decision, uh, to go towards that success more easily. So that was interesting to me. Um, and then I had another question uh, for myself, which was, what is holding us back from taking courageous action and realizing our greater potential? So, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, especially in the face of fear, um, you need to take courageous action. And what do I mean by that? Well, you can't just be born with courage. Uh, you can't just have courage there has to be fear present first um in order for you to have courage like um other otherwise i think it's just stupidity like you haven't weighed all your options so what do i mean by that i mean like uh you know courage can't exist without the fear first because it it's in the challenge of overcoming the fear when you overcome the fear you're said to have courage uh, or bravery, um, because you overcame the fear, even though the fear was there, right? That's what those things come from. Otherwise, if the fear wasn't there at all, then there's no bravery or courage. You're just, you're just doing your thing, right? Um, yeah. Or if you don't consider, you know, those, the potential for negative consequences and you don't consider the fear at all, then you're going in, you know, blind to that whole, that whole spectrum of outcomes that could be very real. They can happen. They can still happen. Uh, but there's no reason to be afraid of them. You know, they're just one of many possibilities. And sometimes we get the short end of the stick, uh, or the short straw, you know, sometimes bad things happen even when we put in our best efforts. Uh, but just remember, it's all for your benefit, even though you may not know what it is for right now. Sometimes, all the time, things make sense in the big scheme. You know, and the universe doesn't have any obligation to tell us what its plan is. All right, so that has been um, the conversation on my mind. 
uh, very special guest today. He's a return guest. He was uh, first on the show in episode 42. And now um, Brad Smith is coming back on the show today after his uh, jungle trip down to Peru and working with Amazonian um, medicines and um, altered uh, mind states. Awesome to have Brad back on the show. He's such a lovely guy. Um, yeah, and if you want to know more about him, go back to uh, episode 42 and, and listen to that intro, and you can get some more info on him. Uh, he is um, working on a master's degree in mindfulness and transpersonal counseling, or he will be soon. Um, he considers himself a medicine worker, uh, also a coach uh, for for you know people in life and things like that. And, um, I don't know, Brad is, when I think of Brad, uh, I think of him as a healer and he's a genuine, gentle soul. Um, but he's also just a journeyer, you know, he's just like the rest of us. He's just somebody who's trying to figure himself out and trying to constantly adapt and, and overcome and, and, um, hopefully come to some semblance of understanding. So, Welcome back, Brad Smith, to the show, folks. Pour out all your love and intentions to Brad as we welcome him back to Conversations with the Mind. Here we go. conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster, and we're here uh, for episode 69 with very special guest, Brad Smith. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Well, man, you're getting up there. Yeah, uh, starting Rolling. to get up in those numbers. Yeah. Um, so last time you were on the show, I just looked it up. It was episode 42. Yeah. Um, so it's been a while, and yeah. uh, we have a lot to catch up on. And I want to start off the podcast sort of how I always do. And you've gotten this question before. Um, so this time, uh, you know, when I ask you, what does conversations with the mind mean to you? I'm more interested in like, how has the meaning of that changed since the last time you were on the show? How has it evolved? Um, and you know, if you have any new insights on conversations with the mind in your life. Yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm not, I don't fully remember, what it was that was said last time. And so uh, we're just going to be shooting from the hip here and conversations with the mind. I'm excited to explore. Let's see. So when I hear of mind, I think of our the thinking body um, of our being. Um, and, and I know that, you know, whether we're talking about the belly or, the heart, they're all decision-making bodies, but when I think of the mind, I really think of uh, ration and reason and all these things. And 
and frankly, how much of a conversation it is day to day because there are so many voices, um, at least in my mind. Uh, but to go beyond that, what I'm really interested in is, um, is consciousness. What is the uh, experience um, that the mind is helping to bring to light in any given moment? Um, and I think consciousness goes far beyond our minds. Um, and I read a book, uh, I'm sure we'll get to it, but when I was in Peru, during a certain period of time, we, um, as folks doing the diets or dietas, uh, we basically just sat around and sat with ourselves. It was kind of like a Vipassana retreat or something of that nature. And a couple of days into it, um, to be perfectly honest, I was like, I need something to put my mind on because I'm like kind of losing it. And uh, so I read this book and in the beginning of this book, um, in the foreword, there's, they're talking about Arunpoche and this great um, teacher who taught Guru Arunpoche back in the day before he brought Buddhism to Tibet. And um, he taught about the illusion of reality and non-attachment. Um, and one day his son died. And this teacher was so distraught. He was grieving and sad. And his uh, students come to him and they say, teacher, why are you sad? Why, why are you bothered by this? You teach us that everything is an illusion and to have a non-attachment. So why are you grieving so much? And the teacher said, because this was the beautiful, the most beautiful of all illusions. And I think that it's really humbling. It makes... I don't know. It's so easy to be non-attached um, and to build a wall so that we don't experience things, but really like we are here to experience. And later in the forward, which is what I'm getting at is he goes on to say art is something that we explore all the most beautiful illusions in life. And we try and bring them to light and contemplate them. And perhaps the most beautiful illusion of all is consciousness itself. And that was part of my exploration was exploring this and realizing that consciousness is so much more elusive than perhaps we want to think. Um, and so when you said conversations with the mind, um, you know, I thought of mind with a small M and then it went to consciousness itself. And that would be a great conversation to have is, you know, what is that? Has that form our reality, both internally and externally? Um, and within that context, how does the mind function? What are all these voices? How do we work with those voices to um, be at peace and to accomplish the things, uh, our dreams that we are dreaming that are being dreamt through us? Um, so that's what's on my mind today. That's really beautiful. I love that. Um, and this is something that, this is a, you know, this is a particular topic that I love to bring up on the show um, and something that I'm currently, you know, changing my understanding of and evolving with, which is uh, the debate consciousness versus mind, you know, and I love how you talk about it, because I'm coming to believe the same thing that, you know, I used to believe that mind was everything that mind was consciousness, mind equals consciousness, but I'm coming to find that mind is a tool, um, rather than, um, you know, a state or something like that, whereas, mm -hmm. like, I can train my mind um, to do certain things for me. I can train my mind to get out of the way. And sometimes I can let my mind run loose and it controls me. 
you know, mm-hmm. but uh, underlying it is this other thing, which I explore through meditation, where you go beyond the mind when you shut it off and you experience the pure consciousness underneath it that doesn't think, doesn't judge, doesn't um, have any sense of quality of good or bad or uh, any values besides, you know, pure love. Um, you know, it's so simple. It's like, you know, I tell some of my clients, um, you know, think about your thoughts or your mind as like clouds over the earth, you know, they can be turbulent or they can be beautiful, but Mm -hmm. there's always, when you fly above those clouds, there's always blue, clear sky. And that, that is more like what consciousness is just this pure state. Yeah. And so if mind can be classified as this tool that we can, you know, get way more proficient at using, then what do we classify consciousness as, you know, cause we're human beings. We like language. We like to put things in boxes and I know it's going to be, um, you know, superficial in nature, but just for the sake of the exercise, like if mind is a tool, then is consciousness the user of the tool? Is it the creator of the tool? Is it, the tool and the the thing that the tool is used for what it what could we classify it as oh man that's a great question um and acknowledging that the answer truly is irrelevant <laughs> it is. because you know it's, there are great mysteries and that's why it's a great mystery uh but yeah for the sake of trying to understand and for mental exercises uh i mean t- it changes for me. And I think what I've been learning recently is that consciousness is again, far more malleable than I ever would have thought. Like my consciousness is not entirely mine. Like it's the underlying field that we all sit within. And so when, and I think that the mind is a tool certainly and it's something that is regular in this dimension in this framework of reality and i don't believe that all planes of existence include the mind like we are familiar with here some planes of existence are simply pure consciousness some beings are simply pure consciousness Um, but here for better or for worse we've got this double-edged sword of, of the mind um, and it can be an incredible tool. Uh, we just need to make sure that we are working it and it's not working us. Um, it, for, I, I lived in, um, in, I lived in India for a couple of years. And when I was there, I was really into Tibetan Buddhism and non-attachment and all this stuff. And what I found is that like, I was so busy being non-attached that like I wasn't living. And and it's because like, I wanted to just completely put my mind away, put my ego away. Um, but instead in, in years since that was 10 years ago or so, um, really it's like, how do we, and I did the same thing with my ego with whether it was with medicine work or meditation or anything else. It's like, cut the ego, cut the ego, cut the ego. And it's like, Hey man, like I'm a part of you. Like this is the ego talking like quit cutting me down. Like, let's be friends here. And there was a, this breakthrough moment where it was like, Oh, we've got to be buddies. 
like we've got to work together. You've got something to offer me, whoever me is, and I've got something to offer you, whatever you are. Um, and I think the mind is somehow very involved in that experience. Um, so I don't know if I completely answered your question, but I think consciousness itself is, it's what you described. It's, it's flow, it's non-thinking, and we can tap into that, but almost always we pop out of it. And so it's about creating that habit, that pattern of allowing and letting go and knowing when to, you know, when do you stick up and say something? When do you uh, change the parameters of any given situation in a landscape? to make it more beneficial to yourself and all your relations. Um, so yeah. Uh, that's a great answer too. Uh, I love that. Mind is a boat. We're just Mm. floating on sea of consciousness, man. (laughs) No, that is true. Um, and you, you know, when you first started talking about consciousness, you said my consciousness, um, and then you, you expanded beyond that, but, it seems like all of us, uh, or almost all of us, um, you know, we, we get stuck back in uh, mind consciousness or, or whatever we want to call it. And that's where we think that we have, um, you know, there's this illusion that we have a separate consciousness from mm-hmm. all the consciousness, you know, out there. And Um, I I just talked to uh, Dr. McKenna on the podcast a a few weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. um, he talked about consciousness in everything, you know, inanimate Mm -hmm. objects, uh, plants, the earth itself, the solar system, you know, the universe, all having um, consciousness. But, you know, we get into, you know, these, these philosophical debates, and I love talking about this too, which is like, what you bring up the illusion of consciousness, the illusion that we have a separate consciousness, Mm -hmm. uh, the illusion of the duality Mm -hmm. um, and how that disconnection or, or how we tend to forget that, um, you know, reconnects us back to this ego state. I love Mm -hmm. how you said making friends with the ego, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, I've used that kind of work a lot with like negative emotions and my shadow and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, making friends with it and accepting it is much better than trying to destroy it. Cause the more you're trying to destroy, it just comes back with equal force. You know, that's we're feeding it. Exactly. Like, and I mean, we've got so much to dive into and it's cool that you were talking with uh, Dr. McKenna Dennis. I was emailing him a couple of weeks ago about his project in Peru and uh, Oh man, that, that guy's great to talk with uh, and so open and humble. Um, and so one of the things that I began to explore with the plants is, and I say with the plants because they were the ones largely supporting me, guiding me in these processes, um, is how do we work with energies, whether it's uh, personal um, emotions or ancestral. Um, and, and that can look like a lot of things, but I'm beginning to really believe that these you know ancestral energies that they run through lineages they run through lines and um and now here we are to work with them um and those can manifest as depression anxiety emotions as well um or we're talking about overall uh like humanity consciousness level of the grief that's going on for uh the dying 
uh, world. Um, and, I, and I do say that I think the world's going to far outlast any one of us. Um, but there's still grief there because of what's what we're seeing in the natural world. And uh, I had an experience personally where I finally was able to bring something out of the shadows and into the light. And I think that's the first step to working with just about anything is acknowledging it and being able to show it instead of hiding it. Cause it's in that hiding that it densifies it. It turns into um, dis-ease. Uh, and so once we bring it into the light, we can begin to work with it. And so I had this experience where this energy, this spirit, whatever you want to call it came out and I was like, Oh shit, now what? Um, I'm sitting in an ayahuasca ceremony when this is happening. And, uh, and the first thing I wanted to do was like, okay, do I fight it? Do I like baptize it? Do I like feed it ayahuasca? Like, do I like, how do I make this thing go away? And whatever I did would just, it come right back at me. It's like the, uh, the last scene in what's that? The shimmer, I think it's called. It's like this extraterrestrial thing kind of emerges, but it ends up being a mirror of the individual. And so if the individual wants to fight it, it's going to fight back with much more force. Um, if it just wants to observe, it observes. And so it's this mirroring quality. Um, but what I ended up finding the best thing to do, and it's so obvious, it's like, just find center. If I just find my own center in this space or in any experience in my life, like things will dissipate. Things will balance themselves out, whether it's through my direct doing or other forces. But if I begin to give something energy, it's going to come right back. Mm -hmm. um, and you do that, I'm sure, in jujitsu. And that's a big piece of mixed martial arts is like, how do I use your energy to take you down? Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that piece of centeredness is just like, that's the medicine I'm working with right now. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking about this same thing with my wife today and talking about, uh, you know, resisting parts of ourself and how that can come back and manifest in all sorts of physical ways and things like that. And I was talking about, you know, the technique that I use, um, which is, you know, when I start to feel any sort of sense of fear in those experiences, um, overwhelming feeling like I wanted to stop or pain, um, instead of, you know, first recognizing that I'm in a fear state helps. But then having, you know, I have a mental switch where I start to, um, instead of shy away, I want to get curious about the thing, you know, this thing that is causing me such distress. Um, you know, I rationalize and say, this thing's not going to kill me, um, but I can turn towards it and like explore it. And I think even putting that, you know, you're talking about putting energy into it. I think, you know, putting positive energy into those experiences. Um, whether it be, you know, it's like, it's like welcoming that part of yourself to the dinner table and saying, you know, we need to be friends. Uh, I'm in control here. You're going to leave my house, you know, when I say you are, but you know, mm -hmm. we're, we have to work together here. Um, mm -hmm. It's much easier um, said than done, but it seems to be much more beneficial for me anyway, to get curious about the weird things that happen Mm -hmm. in, in my mind, in my consciousness. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to bring up real quick, because you, you mentioned um, energy. And that's one of my favorite theories of consciousness, that consciousness is uh, some sort of pure energy. Um, 
you know, I talked to uh, Dr. Uh, Winkleman a, a couple weeks ago too, who's an expert in, um, you know, neurophenomenology and consciousness, and he believes differently, but, um, you know, I still like get this inner feeling that consciousness and energy are somehow intertwined, but maybe that consciousness is still even grander than uh, energy fields. What do you think? Hmm. I mean, wh where my mind goes is an image of, um, it's a Alex Gray painting. And in one of his pieces, uh, or it's a, it's a series, it's called uh, Sacred Mirrors, and he starts off, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. And it's uh, in his museum. He has those. Totally. Yeah. So it starts off with like a cutout of a human body with all the elements on it. And then he moves through to like show the human body, the, the visceral system, the muscular system, the nervous system. And like, you know, these things are all stacking up. And finally, he puts skin all in, on these individuals. Uh, he's got two, a male and a female who are white, a male and a female who look like they're from like Asian descent and then male and female who look like they're from uh, African descent and the color of the skin he begins to you know explore like we're all the same until this thin little coating um, so it's something great to explore for those who are listening but then he goes further to explore the spiritual bodies and you see kind of a, um, an aura of a being and then the next piece is just pure consciousness perhaps it's just uh, vortices and toruses of energy and energy and energy and energy. Um, and then the next one is uh, the void, which is in many mystic traditions, the um, Godhead doesn't seem entirely appropriate, but like the origin or it's this space of like, in my experience with it, it's, it's absolute nothingness and the potential for everything. So it's this, it holds this duality in this singular point. And um, so the first thing that came to mind for me was that uh, portrait of just the energy and that being pure consciousness. But I don't, are they the same? I, I don't know. Um, I wonder what consciousness looks like, you know, like, and I wonder what pure energy looks like to me. I would imagine like white light. And when I've seen consciousness, I've only been able to see the edges of it. If that makes sense. Like sometimes I feel like I'm stuck in my own consciousness before being able to break out of that and into something that's beyond me. Um, so I don't know if they're the exact same. Like everything in life, it's probably both. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like, uh, like you're talking about what consciousness might look like or smell like or whatever. I feel like um, I may not have seen um, because maybe consciousness doesn't have like a, a visual component, but I certainly feel like in some of my um, experiences with altered states in my life that I have, felt pure consciousness or that I have merged with or become or gotten a glimpse like like you said like right on the edge and and was shown a glimpse of um what it, what pure consciousness feels like and most people describe it as just love yeah. and and so um you know obviously our language doesn't do it 
enough justice. And I'd love to hear about, because uh, I definitely want to get into this. Maybe this is a good segue. Yeah, well, real quick, I want to keep yeah. exploring this for a touch more. And sure. was your original question is, is consciousness and light or consciousness and energy the same? Yeah. Or um, does one come out of the other? Like, is it like a chicken and the egg kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, maybe. Or because, like, I feel like I've had the blessing of like meeting some beings that seem like pretty pure consciousness, like light beings, for example. Um, and this is an altered state's work. And that's what they were. They were light, but there was an assimilation of consciousness there. Like they had definition. So it's like, is there just pure energy? And then somehow that gives way to consciousness, which is form or a specific, I don't know. Or maybe the other way around, like you said, chicken and the egg, maybe pure consciousness underlies or, or is an organizing factor of these energies, you know, um, even subtle energies. Like when you say you see, you've seen beings that seem like pure consciousness, but they're made of light, right? Well, light is a vibration. It's a wavelength. It's a frequency. Um, it has a physical manifestation in the universe in some way and so maybe consciousness precedes that and um, decides to organize those vibrations in a way that causes the definition you know causes that's what that void place is right it's this it's this everything and nothing it's this untapped potential and it's it's the unmanifest with the building blocks to manifest everything and anything and perhaps that is in some ways, pure consciousness. Yeah. So many traditions have named it, you know, the, a Godhead or a final place or the, the, the center or the origin, you know, and that would make sense with your description of the void right there. Um, If the void is nothingness with infinite potential to be anything and everything, and that's what it is, then perhaps it's only job and maybe the meaning or the purpose of consciousness in general is to fulfill that, uh, that destiny to manifest infinite possibilities of every possible experience and manifestation really? in the, in the universe. And then, you know, it's fulfilled its purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I like that. I'll send on that note. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I want to get into, uh, your recent travels, you know, your international trainings, as I think you referred to it as your jungle trip. Um, I really want to get into that and I'm really interested in, uh, a few aspects, but let's, let's start with, um, you know, how we describe and understand consciousness here in the West is different and we like to put our labels on it, but in some of these indigenous cultures, they have entirely different languages for, these states, you know, we, we're very restrictive in our country as far as talking about it. Whereas like, you know, for Eskimo, they have like totally. dozens of words for snow. And mm-hmm. I know in indigenous cultures, like entire lexicons are developed around consciousness. So on your travels, um, sort of how has, how's your experience unfolded in that way? Yeah. I mean, so I wasn't there long. I was, I was with Shipibo people. Um, so Shipibo is a tribe in, uh, now almost, ex- I think maybe exclusively, uh, in Peru on the Ukayali river. And, um, 
and while Shipibo people have definitely traveled different places, um, so they're not just in this region. Um, this is where I was, and this is where like the largest concentration of Shipibo people are. I wasn't there long enough to learn the language, um, so I don't know how their language specifically relates to or embodies their work with the plants. Um, however, it, it's all very normal, right? Like uh, the idea that we could learn directly from a plant and merge consciousness with that plant to receive teachings, like that's a no-brainer. There's no, that's far more normal than a elevator. Um, and and I share the elevator because, you know, after being with, uh, I was there for a month and after two weeks, we went back into Pucallpa to kind of just take a day off and um, we were in a hotel and to me, it felt like we'd been literally to hell and back a number of times. And these people handle it with so much grace and love and compassion. And then we hop in an elevator and uh, Maestro Tomas and uh, Maestro Diogenes they both kind of like, well, <laughs> like, wait, we're going up in this thing. And uh, it was just such a humbling moment and so beautiful to witness like, oh yeah, like to everybody, there's going to be some weird stuff out there. And to me, it's like imbibing a plant that then takes me on outrageous, seemingly interstellar journeys, namely into myself. Um, whereas for somebody else, it's like, what's an escalator? or hopping on an airplane. Um, right. They're like, that's magic. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't, it's hard for me to answer that question because I wasn't familiar with the language, but based off of just the love that I received, <laughs> the passion, the understanding, um, I, I, I would not be surprised if there is a lot more, uh, language or ways to, explore this type of content um so you might not have gotten a sense of the language so much but um you get a sense i think being in those cultures um for you know weeks at a time you get a, a sense of how some of them maybe think about reality think mm -hmm. about um you know everything from everyday life and livelihood actions to family to uh, you know, how they believe uh, about death and life after death. And, mm -hmm. you know, it changes their ability to move through the world um, in very beautiful ways. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe you didn't pick up on the language, but by just being around um, these shamans, um, you know, how has your sense of consciousness shifted or your understanding of consciousness shifted since opening yourself up to some of these other ideas? Yeah. I mean, so one example is family and family affairs. And, um, I mean, I've, I've had the privilege of living and traveling in a lot of different places, namely South Asia, um, and Southeast Asia. And so like, there's like these different, this happens all the time, as you're mentioning. And for me, this trip, the big takeaway was family and like, what does that look like? And how fluid can it be? Um, and so, for example, what this looks like is it's so easy, I think, in uh, the United States to get caught up, for me at least, in like 
wanting definition and wanting um, almost like, yeah, like on like a contractual basis of like, hey, this is our relationship. This is how it works. And uh, when we have a family, this is how it works. And, uh, and then so on and so forth. And like, I grew up in a very nuclear family. So my parents, um, bless them, are still together. I've got a brother, we lived in a house. And like a lot of our stuff was like pent up in that home. And I've been exploring this for years now, but like what happens when we take the stuff and bring it outside the home and into the community? Like, what does that do for uh, the individual? And like, for me, I'm thinking right now, like adolescence and rites of passage or dealing with a difficult energy. And instead of like hiding it away in the home, bringing it out to be witnessed and to be supported. Um, but this can also look like uh, having kids. And um, as much as the medicine work itself there was so potent, it was so incredible to be at this family-run center uh, where every day there was kids playing around, there were uh, spouses um, and brothers and sisters getting along with their day, and it just it was so fluid. And so we talked about earlier the mind and consciousness and, you know, consciousness is a state of flow. The mind can be something to dam that up. Um, it can also be something to smooth it out. Um, and it just, to me, really backed up, like, being a flow state of consciousness. Like, I have this overwhelming feeling like this beautiful life wants to flow out of me. But, like, I'm, I can be afraid to let that happen. Whereas it was beautiful to be in a place for a month, witnessing a family in all their relations, all their human relations, letting it all just simply unfold um, instead of wanting to constrict it or correct it. It just was what it was. And that's the way it is. Um, so I, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but it really it opened me up to just living and that being okay living with all of the benefits, all the mistakes, uh, living with the um, pain, living with uh, the successes. Um, and it's all simply what it is. And it's our walk to move it all forward and to transform that in whatever way works for us. Mm. So part of your transformation down there, I assume was, um, you know, dieting. And I'm wondering, you know, what did you eat down there? And how do you think the diet itself maybe altered your consciousness or shifted it in a way? Uh, I've, heard, I've heard that, you know, the dietas that go into those things are uh, very opening, um, you know, mm -hmm. that they open you up to the medicine more and make you more receptive um, to yourself. So, you know, what did you eat and, and how did yeah. that affect your consciousness? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm really, I've, I've heard the word dieta or diet while in the States for the past five years doing medicine work. And in the States, what I typically think it, when I hear it, I, people typically mean something like, Oh, you want to eat a vegetarian diet that's lower on spices and these things to make yourself more available to the plants. Um, so that you can more readily accept them and they're more uh, attracted to you. Um, and that's, that's great, that's spot on. Um, the diets that are 
typically done in indigenous communities, to my knowledge, are more long-term diets where you are dieting a specific plant while sitting in ceremonies. And then that specific plant is helping you to heal and teaching you whatever it is that you need to learn. And each master plant also has its different vibration, its own teaching, its own kind of class or classroom um, to put it in more Western terms, like one may teach math, the other one teaches arts and the other one teaches uh, healing modalities. Um, same thing with the plants, they've got different flavors. Um, and so the program that I did or the trip that I went on, um, the first two weeks was what we called the intensivo or the intensive. And that was two weeks focused on cleaning to prepare for the actual diet that would come afterwards. And so what that looked like was um, first taking a, a purgative. So a lot of centers, when you first get there, you'll take some kind of plant. We took a plant called Pish Pish, which means cleaning, cleaning in Shipibo language. Um, and that basically cleans the gut out. Um, it's also believed in Western science is now showing that we hold a lot of emotions. There's a lot of intelligence in our gut. And so that's the first piece that we clean. Um, other centers, they may clean with tobacco or um, uh, other, other plants that do similar things. Um, after that, we were using different plants every day that were not psychoactive. Um, they could be something as familiar as ginger and honey uh, to help with the immune system or um, plant called Rao to help with uh, like mind and body or some people were working with addiction. Um, and then uh, also every day we'd get a flower bath, which is um, we were working with a plant called Pinion de Colorado. Uh, but you put a bunch of this plant in a big bucket, it soaks, um, and then the water is poured over you and you know we imbibe in the plant that way. Um, and then we participated in seven ayahuasca ceremonies in nine days, um, two, three, and then two. Um, and that was the intensivo. That was the, that was the cleaning, the preparation, the opening. Um, and then from that space, we entered into a diet. Um, and the diet, um, I got to diet a plant, a tree called Huchipapa. Um, he's a, uh, it, it's a beautiful, huge, huge tree. Um, and it's seen as a, a healing tree and a plant or a tree that supports um, people wanting to walk the path of healing uh, to first work with themselves and then learn how to work with others. Um, and so what that looked like in that two-week period was um, cutting out all oil, all salt, all flavoring, and really just eating uh, two meals a day. Um, rice, steamed vegetables, and then every couple of days we got some chicken um, and boiled eggs. Um, and you know, the first two weeks was really rough and rowdy and intense, beautiful as well. Um, and the next two weeks were even more challenging for me personally. Uh, it, it's incredible to be learning from the plants in this in a direct way. They worked with me primarily in my dreams and in the ayahuasca ceremonies themselves. Um, because during the diet, you're also drinking ayahuasca every couple of days to further bridge that relationship with the plant that you're dieting. Um, so that's what we were eating. I mean, I was, I'm a very food oriented person. Um, I, def I lost about 15 pounds down there and I've got it back. So that's great. Uh, 
and when I was down there, like I, I lost a lot of appetite. Like you begin, I feel like we, when you really begin to open, there's this happens in all tradition through fast, whether you're looking at you know Christian, uh, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, whatever. But as we begin to fast, we begin to connect more strongly with our spirit, and we don't disassociate from our body, but we just kind of like leave it be for a little while. We pour our conscious awareness on the more subtle energies. Um, and that's what that was. And the beautiful part is that like, I've never really been able to fast here on the front range because I'm, I'm working or I'm doing stuff, but to be in an environment where I was fully taken care of all day, every day. And all I had to do was stick myself was beautiful. And I found it really hard to sit with myself like that, but it was that much easier to do knowing that like somebody was cooking for me, that people were supporting me. Um, even if it was simply through, uh, you know, cleaning up or whatever it may be. There's not, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction during the diet itself. Okay. And you've been to uh, not just South America, but to India, like you said, and um, w with all your, you know, vast body of, of experiences, what do you think is like your favorite cultural practice, indigenous practice that you've either witnessed or taking part in like I mean there's a lot of them and I'm sure it's hard to to narrow down to one but I'm sure there's yeah. one in particular that stands out as like wow that was amazing yeah I mean the first thing that came up for me is this because it's probably most recent uh and I'm, I'm really loving working with the plants right now um but another thing that came to mind immediately was um when I was living in Varanasi working and being on the burning gods and seeing how this culture works with their dead um their dead and dying and how again much more just out in the open it was um using the element of fire to purify and watching a body burn on a river um and acknowledging that the body is gone but something else remains um and that's influenced a lot of like that's when my interest in death really started 10 years ago and now i find myself as a death doula and supporting people in their dying process um, so I think it's, you know, it's all additive and like, I think every culture does have its gems. Um, right now I'm loving the plant work. Tibetan Buddhism is such a incredible base for me. And for the longest time, I told you earlier, uh, before we hopped on this conversation, I had applied to Naropa and, um, for the longest time, the program I applied to is mindfulness and transpersonal counseling. and I was like, I don't need to pay a bunch of money to go to school for mindfulness. Like I already, you know, the ego trip was like, I already lived in India. Like I already did my sitting practice. Like I checked that off. I don't want to do that again. And after this trip down to Latin America and Peru, it's so clear that like, I just need to dive into mindfulness practice. <laughs> and so now they're cross weaving, right? They're all informing each other. Um, so nice. Um, could you, explain to the audience a little bit more about the intricacies of what a death doula is. And you also said you're working on towards a, like a certification with the state of like conscious dying counselor or something like that. Uh, yeah. So, um, to be a conscious dying educator. So it, last year I went through a course to become a death doula or a, uh, 
conscious dying practitioner or end of life doula, whatever you want to call it. But basically the core of it is that I support people in their dying process. Um, and what I'm finding is that like, for me, the real work, the real medicine is working with people who are much further away from death to build a relationship with death. Because I believe and have experienced that death as an energy, death as a concept is an incredible clarifier. It's an incredible creator of resolve. Um, and it really can bring a lot of vitality into our day-to-day lives, but we want to push that away largely. So the death doula work, I support people in their dying process, um, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, practically. Um, but then I also support people our age in developing a relationship with death so they can live a brighter life up until that day. And one of my favorite um, death work practices, we might've talked about this before is uh, from the Tibetans and meditating on death with yeah. um, bone malas and things and, and how that brings like a real uh, invigoration of, of the beauty of living, yeah. uh, not some morbid practice, but um, totally. you know, but just like, just like with these other aspects we're talking about, like death is something that we need to accept and yeah. we need to welcome to the table and create a relationship with it now rather than wait until the end uh when it comes you know exactly yeah i fully agree um and to answer your question about the conscious dying educator that would support and allow me to teach this stuff at a community level so right now i'm working with individuals going through this next piece i'd be supported by the conscious dying institute in teaching their uh getting their materials out to communities and you know hosting a workshop um these types of things nice yeah which i'm pumped about because that's really the the level and the scale that we need to be talking about this yeah and you know uh speaking of scaling um i want to stick with something real quick because it's been on my mind and i've talked about it in the last few shows and i really want to get your opinion because you have experienced so many different cultures um you know here in the west at least in the united states I don't think we've quite found our own definition of what altered states work looks like, right? Or what mm-hmm. it's what it what it's classified as. I think in in other cultures it's a lot more talked about like you said and you know the the lineages go back, you know, thousands of years. And so for us here in the West in order for us to move into this new you know, revolution of consciousness, this forward shift, um, we need to create or define or um, acknowledge uh, what our culture is around altered states work, um, rather than what I kind of see going on right now, which is a lot of appropriation um, across borders and things like that. And, um, you know, just some disrespect, but a lot of traditions held Um, I think we have our own traditions and our own rituals and our own understandings of consciousness and science and all these things. And we can use all that to create our own Western altered states, uh, culture. Yeah. Um, a couple things come to mind. One most recently, uh, uh, my roommate, she had mentioned cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. I never heard it juxtaposed quite like that, but I think it's a really important one because we do live in a time when all of these cultures are coming together. Um, 
And, and then how do we allow for that and allow for new things to emerge to maintain relevancy while maintaining cultural lineages or practical lineages? Um, so that's something that needs a lot of exploring. How do we pay respect to something when we are utilizing it? And how do we first make sure that we're in right relationship with a plant, with a practice, um, and, and that we have permission to use that? Um, a great example would be sweat lodges or um, people who are working with certain types of plant medicines. Like, do you have permission from that lineage to be working it, uh, working with it? Do you give gratitude back to those lineages to the medicines when working with them? Um, but what you're talking about here in the West, the first thing that my mind goes to uh, is this idea of an Asclepion. Have you heard of this before? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love it. Like the, the old, uh, aren't they? Yeah. The old Greek, um, centers where people would go to get all sorts of physical and spiritual healings and, you know, priests as they were called maybe back then where would go around with, um, you know, uh, psychoactive substances, but not always. Um, Mm -hmm. there were all sorts of alternative, uh, practices happening like in these underground chambers where people were, having major transformations for healing. And this is, you know, widely accepted practice back in uh, Greeks in Greek time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's like, that's right. I, right. It's been here for a year. And so, you know, I'll give it some more time before I might, I really want to make that a life goal to bring back this concept of the Asclepion. Um, of a retreat center where people can go clean the body through um, whether it's like Panchakarma and Ayurvedic tradition or um, more of like a dieta style, a lot in American tradition, but something to like cleanse the body on the physical level with food. How do we work with our dreams? Um, so then you're bringing in like depth psychology, dream analysis. Um, maybe there is altered states work, whether it be breath work or perhaps back in the day it was um, something similar to LSD with the ergot root, uh, but something to bridge these worlds um, to go that much deeper. And then most importantly, how do we integrate that into today, into our lives here? So what does it look like to integrate that? Is it instead of, you know, we know that there were spas and bathing pools and these chambers, but like how do people get back into their body, back in their hands? Like, is that woodwork? Is it beading? Is it, uh, like how do you bring that back to a community level? And then finally somebody goes home and they continue on with their life. But um, the idea of an Asclepion, I think it's within the Western lineage and there are more than a few people talking about it right now. And so I think it's something that really is wanting to come through, to come back again. Um, so much of the revolution that's going on right now, it's remembering. It's remembering what we have once done that worked well. Um, whether that's something that is going on right now with psychedelics. And we did that back in the sixties and some of it worked well, some of it didn't crashed and burned. Okay. Let's do that over again. Or that goes back thousands of years or looking at other indigenous traditions. Oh, that works well. Um, and I think the Asclepion is, is right up there with like glorious ideas that need to, that they want to manifest. And I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah. And I think also right in line with that is like a revamping of, you know, what an apothecary is, 
Totally. You know, like back in the day, people would go into apothecaries and get all sorts of medicines and meads and uh, plants and all sorts of things um, for common ailments. And, you know, nowadays you go into an apothecary and it's a bunch of herbs and spices, you know, but I'd like to see a lot more um, consciousness uh, based, I guess, um, medicines in apothecaries. And um, sorry, you, you bring up this, I think this perfect segue into uh, talking a little uh, more, more in depth, a little more existential. Um, and you talked about, you know, in the Asclepions, people go there to get healed, you know, and you mentioned it earlier where, where, um, you know, sometimes we've felt like we've been too disconnected from our reality and what other practices can we do to like reground ourselves, reroot ourselves in this um, reality that we have to live still. So like, how, how do we, as explorers, as psychonauts, as people that, you know, like to push the boundaries of our consciousness and we reach far out places, how do we effectively land? How do we come back to, this, you know, nine to five type, uh, capitalistic, you know, framework that we're living in. And, you know, how do we be more present? You talked about this before we even started that you have experience with, with bringing yourself back to the present because we've gone out too far before. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's a work in progress for me. Uh, I think the body is such an incredible tool. The breath is such an incredible technology of anchoring our spirit here in, in our body. Um, and how do we work with the earth? How do we uh, work within the three-dimensional world to ground ourselves? I think that that's the most lacking piece within all of the medicine world, altered states world, um, even like the new age thing is integration. Because it can be so easy to want to collect experiences like Pokemon cards or like uh, video games or something. And like the integration piece is so imperative. Otherwise, what was the experience really for if it's not in our body yet? Um, for me, that's been looking like a meditation practice, um, cooking. Uh, just like enjoying this world and all of its fruits um, and my community. Uh, but what I'm really finding is that it takes time and space. And that can be one of the most frustrating things for me personally. Um, and if I don't give it the time and space, it won't unfold. So most recently, uh, my girlfriend and I, we've been living in a van and we just got back to Boulder and we decided, okay, we're going to take a couple of days apart just to like breathe for a minute to figure out what our next steps are. And um, the past couple of days before she moved back today, uh, I was able to witness my integration process unfolding in a way that I hadn't seen since I'd been home because I've been alone, because I've been giving myself the time and space for this information to roll out. And so we we're talking about like, okay, well, what does this next step look like for us? And one of the things that I needed and she's really supportive of is like, I need space. Like I need time alone to allow this stuff to emerge and to roll out. Um, so that's one piece. The other piece that came to mind is like, how do we come back to this nine to five job? And I think 
big changes. I mean, it's been different when I was doing a lot of medicine work here and working full time for the County. Um, it was kind of rough to like go through a giant experience one weekend and show up to work on Monday or Tuesday. And like, what do I do with that? And I was in like the most optimum position of like having flexibility, having communities that I can talk to who listen to me, even having coworkers that like, don't know quite what I'm doing, but like they're open-minded enough to let me go through my process. And that was like a big challenging work. Um, and I think there's this notion of like the matrix, you know, consciousness, how does it manifest? Maybe one of them is like the matrix of what we've created with our Western mind in the West, ration, uh, capitalism, whatever invisible systems we've made that we now abide by, how do we get flexible enough to be able to move in and out of that system? So it's like, if you're totally in the matrix and you're like in your nine to five job and you can't see outside of that, I would argue that there's some work that needs to be done. On the contrary, if you can't function within that matrix, if you can't like get your basic needs met through having a roof over your head, getting food, um, maintaining some sort of income, uh, I would argue that you've got work to do over there. And so it's about like, where's that happy medium of like understanding that these are concepts, these are realities that we make up and how do we learn to traverse those and to utilize them as, uh, as teachers and as resources. Um, so there's probably a lot there to unpack. <laughs> well, that's so helpful to hear um, because I've been going through a lot of, you know, existential uh, reemergence recently, and I won't get into it with with, uh, with the audience. We talked about it before, but um, but yeah, I, that's so helpful to hear. Like giving yourself the time and the space, and you know, that's what I intuitively know and feel like I need is to let it emerge. But a lot of um, people in, in my Western life, you know, are pushing me the opposite way. Like, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And that's what I've been trained as a therapist to do as well. Um, but that's not what I feel intuitively needs to happen. Uh, I'm not even at a place where I can talk about it because I haven't yet felt it. I haven't let it unpack yet. So that time and space is interesting because, you know, and again, because of these invisible Western constructs, like, um, I feel this pressure from society to talk about it, but my intuition says just feel it and let it happen. And, um, you know, there's, there's cognitive dissonance there. There's, um, stigmatization feelings. There's like feeling lost at times. And, um, I think you're right. I just need to listen to my intuition and give it that time and space. And the second piece you said about transitioning between the matrix and, you know, this nine to five reality. I think that is so important, that flexibility piece. Like um, you have to be, you know, and maybe embodying a, an idea that, you know, both of these two things exist and I'm here to do work in both of them. Yeah. Know? So just realizing like, it's not, it's not just one or the other, but Hey, there, you know, there's work to be done in both. There's meaning and purpose in both there's connection and value in both and i'm fortunate enough to be able to do both whereas a lot of people aren't yeah and just to clarify like for me the nine to five is in the matrix idea ah 
And then what's outside the matrix is like, you know, that, that freedom space, that art space, that creative, that limitless space. And I guess the, the image that just came to mind as you were talking is, I think, you know, we can, the way you described it works perfectly as well, because it's transitioning between two worlds, or perhaps it's transitioning between a world that's inside a larger world. And so the vision that came to me as you were speaking is a play. You're watching a play unfold and we can get so wrapped up in the play that we like blink for a moment. We're like, oh shoot, like I'm in an auditorium. Like there's more going on here. Like I can leave the auditorium. Like there's more outside, but you can also get back into the play. And so it's not great if you're never like, if you're never getting out of the auditorium and always just watching this play unfold that we think is our lives. But if we're not also not, if we're also always existing and not witnessing our own lives unfold, that's no good either. And so like, where's the, where's the equanimity to be able to get things done in this world that we've created the play. And then also to be able to blink and be like, Oh wait, I don't want to be here right now. Or like, there's more and tap into that for a moment to then bring more content back to the play and let that all unfold. Yeah. I love the metaphor of the play too, because you can use that not just for, um, you know, altered states work, but for, you know, depression, for PTSD, like that's what your focus is, is just constantly on. And if you you know, take a step back and take a breath, you realize that there is a way out. There is a lit up exit sign right over there. Totally. Did you identify the exits? Before? Totally. <laughs> and so it's not just, for, up. <laughs> yeah, it's not just for altered states, but like this play metaphor um, is so true about every aspect of our lives from relationships to yeah. going to school is a play, you know, all of it is part of this bigger thing that, totally. uh, you know, and we miss out on that. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, um, you were talking about part of your journey uh, to India and part of your journey to South America was about finding clarity. Um, and before we even got started on the recording today, you said that you had found some clarity um, as far as your like life direction. And I know a lot of listeners out there are you know, stuck, um, in places and they're like, I don't know what to do with my life or I don't know how to get to the thing that I want to get to. How do I get clarity? I see this a lot with my clients too. And I was hoping you could share, you know, part of your journey to finding some of that, uh, precious gem of clarity, you know, that we're all seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. A lot of things coming to my mind right now. So I'll just start with one and see where that takes me. And first I think is like fire the, follow the fire in your belly. And I've been, I've heard that for you know years from different teachers and whatnot, but it's like when there's a pull at our gut or heart level, like explore that. And that's, that's, that's the fire that keeps us going. Um, there's also a piece I was reading, uh, some stuff about Kalima, uh, who's a deity in Hinduism. Um, was he the one, uh, they're worshiping in the second Indiana Jones? Remember that? Yeah. If, if she, something like that, she's the mother, she's a uh, like dark mother, the, uh, the 
she's like a feminine version of Shiva and she's a demon slayer, but she's like pretty dark and ugly looking and, but she's full of love. We give her the things that we no longer need or want. Um, we give her our grief. We give her our insecurity. We give her our anger and she just gobbles it up. Um, but we can only give it to her if we're really ready to be done with it. Um, so she's this, she's this dark mother archetype of, like let's dive deep and I'll help you take care of it. But like I'm going to cut straight to the point. So I was reading some information the other day and um, it came up that like, which decision you make is much less important than you making a decision. Like indecisiveness, stagnancy, that is the killer. That is, that's the stuckness is what we cannot afford anymore because we've got like, there's work to do and we've got to get going. And when we're stuck, we're just sitting here and it gets heavy. But at least when we're moving, like there's some momentum there, even if we make the wrong choices right away. Like for me, for example, like I knew I wanted to be doing full-time psychotherapy counseling work. I had no idea how I was going to get there. At the same time, I also really wanted to explore plant medicine work and get really deep into that. Um, and I didn't know what that would look like. So I made a couple of... Uh, moves that actually it's beautiful how life works i enrolled in a program i was working at adam state uh, doing a counseling program i dropped out after one semester um and a part of me could have been like oh man you wasted your money what were you doing at least i knew i didn't want to do that so now in this applying to naropa one of the prerequisites is prior coursework at a graduate level and i'm like dude check <laughs> like that came in nice and so it all works out beautifully in the long run if we let it um, but for me this clarity piece there's a big question in my life of like what role would plant medicine and ayahuasca specifically play in my life and what is my relationship to her in terms of service like i know that i have a relationship with this plant and that there's a service component to it but i didn't know how far I've been feeling this gut pull to go down to Peru or Brazil or do a diet for like four years. And it took me that long to let go of everything I need to, to make it happen. And when I got down there, the clarity I received, some of it was that, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to be a maestro or a shaman or anything of this nature. I'm here to have a relationship with this plant, to help people connect with this plant maybe support them on the prep and the integration side. But even more than that, this plant is here to support me in my work as a counselor, as a death doula, um, as somebody who's trying to support people in finding equilibrium. And like, it's going to get messy at points. And so for me, there's a huge relief in that like, oh, it's not that. I don't need to go live in Peru for the rest of my life. And like that was in my head, you know, it didn't need to be, but it totally was. And it drove me for years. Um, and I don't have any regrets. If I had to make one change, it would have just been doing it sooner. And the timing was perfect in its own right. And so I, I suppose the advice to people listening is like, you know, if you know what is pulling you, go check it out. Like, go investigate it. Go be curious. 
even if it sounds totally crazy or even if it's different than what everybody else you know is doing, like go expose yourself to it because that might not be what you're going to do forevermore, but that's going to be a stepping stone to get you to exactly where you need to be. Um, and then the other piece is like, if you don't know, if you don't feel like you have any pull, any one way direction, then like, Quiet down a little bit. Ask your, you, there's some great, again, this death doula work for people who aren't dying or aren't close to death. Can you still hear me? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Should I go, would it help to go downstairs? Um, it might, yeah. Okay, no, I'm gonna do that. Okay. I'm moving. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, you know, this clarity of the, you know, that you're talking about, I think for me, like what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, you need to trust um, the pull. You need to attune to the pull and you need to trust the pull um, that's pulling you and, uh, you know, get off your ass pretty much because, you know, life is movement. Yeah. Life is not stagnancy. Death is stagnancy. Right. Um, So, you know, live and move forward in, in any direction is better than none. But in particular, if you can identify what's pulling you um, on the, you know, on the emotional level, not just the intellectual level, not just like, you know, I need, um, you know, this car and this house and, you know, these things. Um, but instead, like, what is, what is that passion? What, what is that? Uh, you know, that's something we're all striving for is like, what is our purpose? What is our thing that we're here to do totally yeah and like it's it's a big experiment um so we don't need to know and but having the courage to check it out is like the most liberating thing i've ever it, it's always just spot on and if it's not exactly what i thought it was going to be it's exactly what i needed to get me to where i need to be um so yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with everything you said, like, but listen to it and, um, and, and do something and, and trust it. Just like trust yourself because, and, and trust your belly, trust your heart, the mind. There's so much going on there for me. It's hard to trust my mind a lot of the time, but I'm also learning to, um, like it was so interesting last night I was supposed to come up to your house and, uh, that didn't end up happening. And when you first reached out about that date, there was something in my head that was like, no, it's not like there's something else going on there. And I even checked on Clarissa. I was like, there's this awesome opportunity to go hang out with Shane. Like, I don't know what in my head is like saying no. And then I got that call. And then I almost had some work happen that day. It, nothing happened. And then you reached out and you're like, Hey, I've got some life stuff going. I need to tend to, it won't work to come up tonight. Um, and even that of like learning to tr- which, like what's the slightly different frequency of that no than of all the doubt that's always going on in my head. And so it's through trial and error of like listening to a no or a yes in my head, going with it or going against it and seeing what the outcome is. And then beginning to feel like how do those things feel differently. Um, but I'm always amazed at like the magic of the unfolding when, when I can listen. Yeah. Um, I do have to caution some listeners because, uh, because of my like, um, maybe misguided 
but it's it's all on the path right um uh, my my um obsession with the mind um in my earlier years as opposed to now my my bigger obsession with um consciousness in general um it's fascinating that you know listening to your heart and listening to your mind we all know intuitively how to do that but the mind like you well you didn't you didn't explicitly say this but for me anyway i discovered that the mind is really good at lying to me as well yeah yeah it you know it says things that are untrue it projects into the future it looks back at the past and creates stories of regret and things like that that are unnecessary for my happiness in this life um so the mind lies to you it has that capability and it's really good at it but it also you know has some common sense and and can help like put together the plan right but then there's this this feeling quality and i know the listeners out there have felt this at one point or another we all have it you know whether it's somebody walking into the room and you get a gut feeling about them or you know love at first sight or something like that i think we can again use the mind as a tool to identify what are the possible options in this scenario um list them out very intellectually pros and cons or whatever and then feel into that like meditate on that and and start to you know lay down you know put down your mental intellectual self and just sit with that list and see what feels better which options feel better than what other options and don't try and you know rationalize or intellectualize and then the hardest part i think is trusting that gut instinct because you you'll you'll recognize you know which one has a quality of like oh okay this feels the like the best option um but then your mind will kick back in and say like oh but what if this happens and what if this happens right so you just got to feel that and then trust it you know once you have utilized the capacity of the mind to you know think through multiple scenarios and outcomes you know what i mean totally and it's a learning process like Sometimes I totally mess up and then I get to learn from it. Other times I'm like spot on, but I didn't listen to it. Other times I, you know, it, it's this, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. One of my favorite jujitsu quotes is um, you never lose. You either win or you learn. Yeah, totally. And you know, I would, I would have to add on to that, that there is a way to lose and the only way to lose is to, well, either not try yeah. or to quit, you know. Um, there is no failure in failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you tried the thing. That is a success in itself. And so you can't deny the successes that have already come, let alone you don't know how that's going to build on something else to give you greater success in learning for the future. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's the beautiful thing, man. It's like life is this giant mosaic. Some of my most favorite moments in life is like when I've got all these puzzle pieces that I've been building over years, whether it's skills or experiences or relations. And then all of a sudden they fit together to make like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And it like propels me forward in my life. And like, I could have never guessed that all of these things would somehow come together, let alone make something so gorgeous. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I was stuck in my alcohol addiction, um, in my teens and early twenties, I certainly had no idea what life could be like now. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I look back on some of those challenging times in my life and I no longer see them as burdens to me. You know, they're not stones that I'm carrying, but I have since um, carved those stones into things that are now useful tools again. And I can go back to the past and what I can learn from it, um, you know, I can bring into my everyday life to make me a better person. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a part of, you know, integration isn't only a thing for altered states. We should be integrating all sorts of experiences. You know, you have a great um, meal, you know, that just like felt so good. Well, sit with that for like two minutes after you eat and just like, Oh my God, that was so amazing. Thank you so much for all the things that went into this. And I think integration could be implemented in everything. Yeah, I agree. I fully agree. And, uh, yeah. So, so how do we do more of that? How do we make that more mainstream? Um, how do we make that more accepted? Because we can always, it's so easy to want more to move on. Yeah. And in our society, we we're on to the next thing, you know, there's, we don't give ourselves enough time. We're like, okay, finish that. Got to go. You know, even with accomplishments, we don't mm-hmm. sit and, and accept that. So how do we, how do we create that, that space? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Accomplishments. It's a great point. Like here's this amazing success. Like you can revel in it for a moment, <laughs> like enjoy <laughs> instead of just like, Oh, well, how can I do something great? I mean, I saw it in the sustainability field. Um, bless everybody involved, but it's, it, it can everything can. We do live in times where time is of the essence, and time is an incredible teacher and and an incredible uh, resource. But like, I saw so many times people I loved and people who worked so hard, they you know, work their butt off to get some piece of policy moved through or to get some killer program up and running. Um, and then the moment that it went through, there wasn't, it was on to the next immediately. And I mean, it makes me think of just like writing a list for some of these people that I got to work so closely with for so many years and be like, Hey, do you remember you did all this? <laughs> like, just here's a gold star for a moment. <laughs> like good work. If you can take just five minutes to read this list and think about each one of those projects and the results and the time that you put into it. Like, I don't know. I, I think that burnout is something that's really common these days um, in all fields, um, especially things that are more in the human services, environmental services worlds. And uh, I, I wonder if that would help us if slowing down would help us not burn out, if reveling in these beautiful machines that we've built, whether it's again, a program, a policy or an actual electric car, like allow that to charge you up for a moment. You just built the darn thing. Like let it give you something awesome to roommate on to keep you going. Um, so that, that's maybe a homework for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, totally. I mean, and if you think about it, we, we have all this research and all these, you know, even an understanding in the general population here in the U S these days that, you know, we are driven to seek pleasure experiences, you know, like, uh, dopamine releases and, um, things like that. And, you know, all sorts. Yeah. And so that's why we, you know, we get addicted to things. It's why, you know, Uh, We get a little dopamine spike when we, you know, get a like on Facebook. And so that's what we're seeking. You know, that's a big part of 
happiness is getting that chemical release. And um, I think that, well, you know, I think that, you know, we're seeking that. And when we accomplish things, we get that. We get that which we are seeking. And yet we still deny it. Mm. We still say, on to the next thing. We don't sit and revel in it. Uh, we don't enjoy the thing that we were going after. Mm-hmm. It's always about something more, something more, something more. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a lot, uh, a loss of appreciation in there. Mm-hmm. And to build on that, I'm forgetting the, um, these are psychotherapies. He's really big in the men's world of, uh, you know, right relationship with masculinity. He's, uh, he's also really big in the world of grief. Um, I'll try and remember his name, but he talks about, I forget if he uses internal versus external uh, benefits or like if it's primary and secondary. And he talks about primary as uh, having to do with relationships, with community, with uh, building a home, creating a garden, building a relationship, having a network of community members. Like those are, oh, those are primary fulfillments is what I think he calls it. So creation and connection. Exactly. It's like those are, those satisfy us on the soul level versus things like money, pleasure, um, buying things, consumption. Those are all secondary in those the voids those that's the land of the hungry ghosts the buddhists would say like those are the voids that will never be filled and so how do we seek happiness we fill those primary desires of connection of creation and maybe we pay less attention to the uh the alcohol the food the dopamine the new game computer all the stuff that like we know ultimately fades away. There's stuff that we can't take with us. Um, And we focus on the things that feel us, fuel us on something much, much deeper. Um, Yeah. And I've heard the Buddhists talk about this in the sense of non-attachment to pleasure um, uh and how it's, um, you know, I've also used that for pain too. You know, when I'm in extreme pain, non-attachment to that pain certainly lessens my connection to it. Yeah. um, I've heard, Various things on both sides. One side says you should, um, you know, avoid all those uh, secondary things that you listed uh, at all costs, that you should not get stuck in those trappings um, and just avoid them. Whereas others say, um, well, they're a natural part of your experience. You shouldn't deny them. You should, again, you know, make friends with them and, and come into right relationship with them rather than denying your um, your drives for pleasure, denying your uh, desires for, you know, sex and money, that those things are okay too. Uh, they're facilitative in their own way. Uh, yeah. Where do you stand on that? Like, uh, yeah. should they be denied all the way or should they be integrated or, or how? I mean, I think it's, I can only speak for myself. Um, by the way, Francis Weller is the gentleman who is talking about those fulfillments. Um, and for, I mean, for me, like I was saying earlier, I went through a period of time when I was in India where I was denying myself pleasure, uh, sensation, 
Um, and, you know, and then over the past 10 years, there's been a whole process with that right now. Like, I don't want to deny myself anything. So the moment that I push something away, it comes in other forms. Um, it comes into my dreams. It, but everybody's different too. Like, I think the crux is the right relationship. Like, for me, uh, trying to think of, I do have like a somewhat addictive personality. And so I have to be really mindful with substances like tobacco, marijuana, alcohol is no, not so much a challenge for me these days. Um, but like, I also totally respect people who just don't want to touch it. Like that's, if that's your right relationship, then great. Um, for me, I'm trying to, you know, engage, but also make sure like, is this a good moment for this? Like, does this feel good? Why am I approaching this? Um, I got sent away to a wilderness therapy program when I was in high school. And the big takeaway from that was like, it's not what I'm doing, it's why and how I'm doing it. Um, that's been a big teacher in my life, um, especially in recent years. Uh, there's what we started on maybe to bring this whole thing full circle is what's consciousness versus the mind. And, um, and I think that in a lot of practices, you know, whether it's the Catholic church or um, Buddhist text or whatever it is, like these things are made for the masses. And sometimes they get a little bit conservative, but they're also doing so most of the time with good intention. Um, and if you wrote in a book, like the Bible, that's like, it's just a lot of people, people like rules. I don't, I like guidelines. <laughs> um, and it reminds me of that roomy quote. So I'll paraphrase it, but something like, uh, beyond the ideas of right and wrong doing, there's a field and I'll meet you there. And in this place, not even, uh, like I or you exist. Like we are just simply what is. Um, and I especially butcher the last end of that, but, the crux there is like, I want to go to that place. I want to go to the place of gray. I want to go to the place of right relationship, not the place of do, do this or don't do that. Um, because everything's so subjective. Yeah. Um, I wish it was that easy, frankly, but it's, you know, it's far more malleable than that. It's far more gray and free than that. Yeah. Um, I was, yeah, like I was saying, I was speaking with Dr. Winkleman on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and um, a lot of his theories on consciousness have to do with um, this relationship aspect and not just to things and substances and things like that, but also um, what is our relationship to consciousness itself? And he's saying that um, consciousness is uh, basically, it's knowing, it's knowledge, it's um, data out there and um we form a relationship with this data based on our history based on our neurochemistry based on our experiences based on our environment and the people we're connected with and that it's this relationship to the knowledge of consciousness um or the knowledge that is consciousness that creates our subjective reality you know um, does that make any sense? Like the relationship extends all the way to how do you engage with your consciousness? 
Do you engage it in a negative way? Do you tell your consciousness negative things about yourself all the time or positive or, you know, what is your relationship with consciousness? I think that's so important for people to ask themselves. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and then I think that gives so much space for the manifesting subjective creation of our reality, which then gives so much more leeway for it all to be true. Like it's so easy to be like, Oh, well you're talking about spirits. I don't believe in spirits, but I believe in like vibration or I believe in like energy or I believe in emotion or whatever it is. And it's like within the context of what you just said, it's like that umbrella is large enough to hold all of it because it's our relationship to the data, to the wisdom, to the truth that we then create this world. We create our own world. And then perhaps it's through the minds and the hearts and you know the consciousness of all these individuals that we create our collective world we create our planet earth um because we i think it's beautiful that's where i have a lot of hope people are like well you know, the world is just there's all this stuff going on it's like yeah but if we all agreed tomorrow that like fossil fuels there's a better way it'd be out it'd be done we, we'd have it all figured out tomorrow We'll never come to a conclusion like that, but like that's how fast we can change the collective reality through the collective individuals changing theirs. Um, yeah, man. One of my favorite examples of that is I think it's it's either World Meditation Day or, or World Peace Day, yeah. in which um, there's like millions of people come together and they all pray or meditate at the same time for world peace. And um, there's statistical evidence showing that crime rates and things drop significantly during those hours that these people awesome. are doing it. Now I've got something real to show for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've experienced it in group consciousness, altered states, ceremonies. Did you experience that down in Peru too? Uh, you know, like this mini spaceship of consciousness where you're, you're all in the room together and you share. Uh, you have a shared reality that's beyond this reality. Oh yeah, I mean, I experienced that there, here. <laughs> uh, I experienced that. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's interesting because uh, the subjective versus objective reality yeah. um, sort of becomes a non-issue when everybody is in consensus within those rooms. Like we were in this different space. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, no, we totally experienced that. And I've, yeah, it, it's the motif of like, we're on a spaceship together. Everybody's kind of doing their own work or checking out their own stuff, but like we're on a little consciousness spaceship and we got to be mindful of what's in the room because we're all going to feel it to some extent. Um, and I mean, this is an offshoot of that, but like I'm in a relationship right now and happened for the past year and a half, like her and I, it's such a blood, it's a, it's double-edged sword to share consciousness with another person to whatever degree it's shared. And this happens in relationships, twins, you know, we, we, there's lots of examples of it, but like sometimes it can be a lot to be sharing something so intimate with somebody, whether it's a journey that's uh done with plants to get outside of our minds or it's like cooking dinner or just trying to have like a little bit like 
me time, but becoming to terms that like perhaps me extends past this body right here and that even that can be shared and perceived and understood. But then there's also this incredible boon too of like, well, like what do you want to create? Uh, whether you're talking about a group setting or whatever it is, whether it's counseling or altered states work um, or community wanting to build something or two people wanting to have a family. Um, it's, I mean, it's beyond beautiful. Uh, the opportunity that we as human beings have in this lifetime. Yeah, I was talking to uh, my friend Rob the other day too, and um, he was really talking about um, using altered states work or psychedelics work at a community level and how that can um, potentially create community healing. Like say there's a, a riot in a community and then all of a sudden here in the, in the West, we're like, okay, you know, Sunday night, there's going to be a ceremony in the local church for healing with MDMA. If you guys want to come, um, you know, heal your PTSD from this collectively, that it could produce healing um, for the community on this collective scale. And in in some of those South American cultures that you visited, um, you know, these, this altered states work is so commonplace. It's just, it just how they operate sometimes. And I'm wondering, did you see anything like that where, where, um, communities would get together for community healing. I know the Native Americans do that with, um, you know, their peyote ceremonies getting together under the teepee. Um, did you experience anything like that? I, 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 I didn't. I've experienced that here, um, doing breathwork ceremonies for firefighters, for wow. keys, for, and, you know, that being a service. Um, I wasn't present, but up at uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, that was commonplace. You know, how do we heal this community, um, both during the trauma and afterwards? It's commonplace in a lot of indigenous communities here in the Americas, Africa, I'm sure all over the world. Of like when warriors come home from war before they can enter into the community, they go through a process to uh, heal the PTSD that they had, the trauma that they had just experienced. Um, when I was in Peru, I did not, I wasn't present for it, but uh, Two and no, a year and a half ago, one of the maestros, Maestro Diogenes, he's the kind of, he's at six, I think he's 65, and um, one of his sons is also a maestro. The others are all on the path, but you know, it can take 20 years sometimes. And um, long story short, dad, maestro, two, a year and a half ago, his son died. Um, his son died in a car accident, and uh, Renee, the woman that ran this trip, was telling us about what that process looked like. And um, his son died after the funeral. Um, I won't share all the details, but one component of it was um, a ceremony that night where everybody engaged with, um, everybody engaged in ceremony. People who drank ayahuasca drank ayahuasca. And uh, songs were sung to acknowledge the event, to try and um, ask the plants for healing with the grief, with the passage. Um, and so I wasn't present for one, but yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, I think that's like the original thing here. Like the Huni Queen, they traditionally only do, and the Huni Queen's a tribe in um, Brazil. Uh, there's a little bit in, there are some of them in Peru, but uh, this this work was done to ease the tensions of the year. Like so much stuff gets built up um, in peyote ceremony um, in Wiratica tradition, which is uh, people out of Mexico. Um, 
before we engage in ceremony, we list off all of our sexual partners um, since the last ceremony, or if you haven't done it before your entire lifetime. And we offer that up to the fire along with any other sins. And so and you do that publicly. So imagine in a community setting that you do this once, twice, three, four times a year. And I slept with your wife or you slept with my wife here we are in ceremony about to imbibe in a big master plant. And I've got to say out loud, give it to the fire. Like I slept with your wife and I slept with this person and I'm sorry and I give it up. And so I think in a lot of ways that if it wasn't one of the drivers for beginning to work with these plants, it's totally in the toolbox. Um, and it's beautiful in that way because you release the trauma, you give it up. You give it up to something larger than us to help us work with it. Um, and that's so important because again, like it's not, uh, it's so many times the trauma itself is a big deal, but what's far more caustic is keeping it buried in the shadows within our being. Like that is what really creates destruction. At least that's been my own personal experience. Like, uh, sexual trauma when I was a kid. Um, and it's definitely trauma, the lowercase T, but it also runs in my family. My mom was sexually abused. My grandma was, her brother was. Um, in her family, sexual abuse. And now here I am working with that. And I've been working with it for years. And in the jungle, what came out was like, I had to say it out loud. Like I had to like fall to my knees in tears after a ceremony telling the group about this thing, but it was like, it wasn't the thing that was terrible. It was keeping it buried in my being that was terrible. Like the moment that I was able to let go of it and bring it into the light, it, it started to work itself out like pretty quickly. Um, but before that, it was just knotted up in my gut, truthfully. Um, so, and I think, think that these medicines help us to let go of these things to have the courage to bring them into the light. Yeah. When I went through uh, my inpatient for addictions, um, they had us do this exercise and I was out in California at this time in Newport beach. And so that's where I grew up, man. Nice. Yeah. Part of it. That's a riot. Uh, we were right on the peninsula, you know, there's uh, a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of sober houses and recovery uh -huh. centers down there. It's like a hub for that, but yeah. We were down on the beach and having this bonfire and they asked us to write down like our top five or top 10 worst things we ever did in our life um, tied to our addiction. And um, we could either share them with the group or not, but we would take this piece of paper and fold it up and offer it to the fire uh, in front of everybody. And um, the majority of people did end up sharing, and I shared uh, for sure, things that I thought I should never tell anyone or I uh, could never tell anyone, things that could get me, you know, um, in a lot of trouble, you know, things like that. And I shared these things to this group of uh, men that I trusted and a counselor there under this, um, this sort of contract that we had made to to keep things confidential and I shared it and I offered it to the fire and immediately I felt weight just fall off of me, you know, from carrying it for years and years and using fire in that, you know, fire is a medicine too, you know, oh, yeah. fire, 
fire's a cleanser. Mm-hmm. It, it washes across landscapes and cleanses it for a regrowth, a rebirth. Um, fire does the same thing for us too. We can put our intention and our our desire to want to let go of things into a fire and it can help cleanse that stuff from our psyche, um, you know, in a lot of ways. And even in, you know, in physical ways, you're literally writing it down on paper and um, the fire burns it up and it goes back into the universe. You know, mm-hmm. you can think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Dude. Next time uh, I, I lead a winter solstice ceremony every year. Um, and they all have an element of fire, but especially the winter solstice is like when the light is coming back. And so we do this ritual with, um, you know, letting go, planting a seed, uh, but maybe it'd be cool to do a, a podcast or something, but do the ceremony, you know, like do it live right then and there. And then you can extend that out to this network of listeners um, because it really is potent work. And it's so seemingly simple, but so potent. It's just, there's a, there's an idea I'm, I'm studying astrology right now, which then brings in numerology and the season. It's so complex and beautiful, but there's this idea within mathematics and Greek and, um, of the essence, <clears throat> the essence of something The simpler, something is the more pure it is. And like, to me, the elements that's, that's purity right there. Whether you're using water to wash something away, fire to purify it, uh, wind to, uh, restore earth to ground like those are the building blocks of our reality here um and fire is such an incredible purifier yeah man i would love to talk with you about uh you know figuring out logistics as far as you know how doing a podcast in a group ceremony would look or even sound like but uh i'm down for it for sure that sounds awesome I, i'm getting more into um understanding or trying to understand what are the astrological um implications on my cosmic body as far mm-hmm. as energetics wise and you know we just had that big solar eclipse and you know solstices and things like that i'm trying to understand more how that impacts our energetic spiritual bodies and and mine in particular because yeah uh, that's why i got into psychology in the first place i wanted to figure out what was wrong with me so uh-huh. uh but i think that's a good place for us to to end it for today and i wanted to um, really thank you for your time and, um, your mindfulness for the last couple hours and, um, everything you said on the podcast as always resonated with me on so many levels. Um, it's like, uh, I talk about this too, how, how we have these connections with certain people that come into our lives and it feels like you've known them, uh, on other journeys in other lifetimes on other planes of existence and Brad, you're certainly one that I think I've traveled quite often with. And yeah, yeah, it's mutual. Yeah. I'm we, so excited to learn how this thing keeps coming together. Um, yeah, I've got nothing but gratitude in my heart for you. Uh, so thank you. And uh, do you mind if I share one thing with the listeners? Yeah, please. Um, I just, it feels important to share that, like, whoever's listening to this, you're doing great. You're doing something. Um, you're expanding your awareness. You're expanding your, your consciousness through expanding your awareness. And, you know, times right now are, uh, they're challenging to be frank. And I have full faith, like in the deepest part of my body, um, 
the, the future is secured, whatever that means to you. And now we just need to walk this path to get there. Um, and that for every uh, challenge that we're met with, there's a boon on the other side of that. There's a pot of gold. Um, and so thank you for doing the work. Thank you for listening. And um, yeah, have faith. We're going somewhere gorgeous. That's for darn sure. Nice. And if people wanted to uh, reach out to you or ask questions, if you're open to that, how could they reach out to you? Yeah, they can uh, email me at bradsmith647 at gmail.com. Um, I'm hoping to get a website running up and soon. I know I said that last time, but this time it's for real. <laughs> what was the website coming up soon? Uh, I don't quite know the URL. I think it's going to be Bradman of the Heart. Oh, that's right. Yeah, a, a swi- slight little twist. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, and, and reach out. I, I'd love to um, connect and exchange uh, words. It's, it's a time to be connected these days um, to ourselves, to each other, to the earth. Um, we have big, big opportunities in this lifetime. So, yoo-hoo. Yeah, it's an exciting time if we, if we want to embrace it. So thanks to all the listeners out there for listening to the show as always. Thanks, Brad, for being on the show. Um, many, many more conversations um, between us to come in the future. So I appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Yeah, peace to you. Blessing. Awesome show, Brad. Thank you so, so much for being here, man. Um, sorry we couldn't make it happen in person cause I miss you, man. I want to give you a big hug. Um, but thank you for spending your time and coming on the show. Uh, you answered a lot of questions for me personally in my inner psyche, and I hope you did the same for uh, the rest of the audience. I know you did for at least a couple people, and really that's all that matters. So thank you for continuing to heal us and and um, and help facilitate positive consciousness change. Um, you're an amazing soul. So glad I know you, man. Uh, and I have a feeling that we have known each other in many lives before, uh, and probably in many different incarnations. So thanks to the listeners. Uh, please continue to like and share. If you like, and sh- if you like the show, like and share. Uh, donate if you want. No obligation there. And go check out our YouTube page. Um, it's up there for you guys. There's a lot of cool videos up there. Again, thanks to the listeners. Thanks to Brad. And we'll see you guys next time on Conversations with the Mind. Have a good day.
Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.